0: When Phil Borges takes out his camera,
1: he knows it can change the way people view the world.
0: I've given Polaroids to people that haven't seen their face. They can't believe it's them. They'll have to have a friend come by and look at it and point to it and say, yeah, that's you. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In the hour ahead, we'll learn how one of today's best photographers
1: of indigenous people gains their trust in order to give us a peek into their lives. But when you're in Africa, wildlife artist Fred Krakowiak knows when you need to put your camera away. You want to shut your eyes and use your other senses to
2: listen to the language the animal kingdom uses to speak, the messages they communicate
1: about the magnificence and frailty of life. And Francis Tapon explains why he's about to visit every single country in Africa. Get yourself out of your comfort zone when
3: you travel. I think people grow as a result of such experiences. We're exploring
1: Africa and the world with a different angle. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Africa requires you to use all of your senses. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, wildlife artist Fred Krakowiak explains how the animals and landscapes of Africa speak to him when he's on an artist's safari. And Francis Tapons about to discover another side of Africa... He's setting out in just a few days on a three-year voyage, one country at a time, to every one of Africa's 54 nations. We caught him just before he leaves to see how he's doing it. Many indigenous societies in Africa and all around the world are dying out. At current trends, half the languages spoken in the world today will disappear within a generation. Phil Borges wants us to get a glimpse of the predicament facing many indigenous cultures. He calls himself a social documentary photographer. He invites us to meet indigenous Tibetans eye-to-eye in his stunning photo book called Tibet, Culture on the Edge. Phil joins us right now to share how he gathers intimate photographs of remote societies. Phil Borges, thanks for joining us.
0: Hi, Rick. Great to be here.
1: Phil, for you, you want to make photography, it seems like, a force for good in your work. How do you make your photography have an impact on people? What... What's your goal?
0: My goal is to take people that we think is very abstract and part of an anonymous group as individuals. So I usually have them look directly at the camera. When I present them in my books and in my exhibits, I have a little bio that gives their name, their age, a little bit about their family any interesting aspect of their lives so we can look at them and think of them as just another individual, much like us. So you've done many different
1: books featuring different slices of this world. I'm holding your Tibet Culture on the Edge book here, and uh, clearly you had an interpreter with you when you were doing this work because you interviewed each of your subjects. Yes, always. Do you interview them first, and they get comfortable with you, and then you're having a better time shooting them?
0: It depends. But what I do typically when I say I'm going into a tribal area, the first thing I do, I I bring a Polaroid camera with me and I start taking Polaroids of the kids. That's a great idea. It gets everybody loose and you're on their team and it's fun. That's right. And kids are very open all over the world. I mean, they're the same, especially boys for some reason. But they all want to have their Polaroid taken. They take those Polaroids home to their parents or to their little mud huts or wherever. And then pretty soon the parents want a Polaroid. So that's one of the icebreakers I use when going in. But I typically, when I meet somebody, I walk up to them and start talking to them because they can read my body language. And I'm talking in English. They can't understand me. Pretty soon they're talking in their language and we're both laughing (laughs) about it. And then I'll call over the interpreter and and let them know what I'm there for, what I'm doing. When we think about
1: traveling around the world and photographing people, I would imagine every culture has a different idea of what is beautiful. Do you have a sense of that when you're in a different culture as what is not beautiful from our point of view, but what's beautiful on their terms?
0: In terms of human beauty? Yeah, right. Yeah, well... One of the things that happens quite a bit when I hand out these Polaroids, I've given Polaroids to people that haven't seen their face and they can't believe it's them. They'll have to have a friend come by and look at it and point to it and say, yeah, that's you. There are
1: people on this planet that don't know what they look like. Oh, yeah.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah, Less and less all the time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, that's interesting when that happens. In terms of beauty... um, you know, I have this book, Enduring Spirit, which is tribal people and indigenous people all over the world, which I carry with me, and I'll take that and I'll let them look through it, and they'll look at, a say, uh, somebody from Irian Jaya, say, and I'm in Africa. They might have bones coming out of their nose and a penis gourd on, and they'll laugh. Oh, geez, that's the strangest things. How could anybody do that? You
4: know? <laughs> yeah, and, and
0: here they're sitting there with uh, you know a lip plate in their yeah. the lower lip that's about six inches in diameter. So, you know, we all have our own senses of what's beautiful. But what struck me when I looked through your Tibet book
1: was that there was a very... Fundamental beauty in each subject, and it wasn't your standard American beauty. They were not necessarily beautiful by, you know, advertising standards in the United States. But there was a fundamental beauty that transcended, you know, how smooth was their complexion. Are yeah. you aware of that when you're, oh, when you're yeah. working?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm attracted to. That's what I love that's taking a, pictures. That's a, of. in the raw it's, beauty. It is. It's just a very natural, un enhanced in any way. Look at the way we're enhancing beauty in this oh, country. Yeah. But is, th-
1: is this beauty that we see in the rough, is that a function of the strength of their spirit? Because sometimes you see somebody, they just go, there is one proud person. There's a person who's on yeah. the top of things, who's fulfilled.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, Does that s-
1: energy come through?
0: Yeah. yeah, oh yeah, definitely. I don't know. There's something about being close to the earth.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it's in true. that
0: cycle, and you know, there's dirt on their face. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, it's people. just
1: such a beauty. When you are dealing with people in different cultures as a photographer, do you find different people uh, have a different uh, fear or reaction to the camera? Some people just can make love with the lens, and other people, <laughs> you're the enemy.
0: <laughs> how do you get through that? What are the taboos and so on? Well, first of all, you know, I teach a lot, and students are always wondering, how do you break the ice and First of all, you have to be comfortable with yourself in doing it, and that takes a little bit of practice. But I've been in so many different cultures and tribes, and, you know, I've never heard the term, I'm afraid you're trying to steal my soul. To me, that's an old wives' tale. Yeah. But, you know, it was Ethiopia down on the lower Omo Valley with the Merzi tribe. For some reason, when I was down there, there was a belief at that time that something would come out of the camera and blind them. So they would, when I would hold up the camera, they would duck their head. But other than that, you know, I find it much easier to take a picture of a person like this than a picture of somebody in our culture. Mm -hmm. In our culture, we're worried about, okay, am I going to look too fat, too old, too this, too that? There, they're mostly... Especially if I'm using a light, they're caught up by you know. Geez, this is interesting. So their attention isn't on themselves; it's on me, and it's an outward-directed attention that gives a stronger image. Do you find it helps to give them some business? uh, Smoke a cigarette,
1: fling a prayer wheel around, or just be
0: alone with the camera. You mean while, they're, while I'm yeah. taking this picture? I usually let them be alone when I'm doing portraits. Now I'm doing more films, and I just want them to do what they're doing, and I'm filming. But I pretty much want them just to be there with the camera.
1: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Phil Borges, and Phil has written a number of beautiful travel photography books. His latest book is Tibet, Culture on the Edge. To learn more about Phil and his uh, work as a photographer and a traveler, you can visit philborges.com, P-H-I-L-B-O-R-G-E-S. Phil, how do you go beyond natural lighting? It seems like you've got a sun gun going on or something, even in daylight when you're taking these photographs. Yeah,
0: it's evolved over time, and I started carrying Lumadine lights, which are battery-powered, and I used a big umbrella. Now I mostly shoot natural light because these cameras have gotten so good. The dynamic range is so wide that I can take a picture, even of a dark-skinned person against mm-hmm. a light background, mm-hmm. and I'll be able later in Lightroom to, in post-production, to pull out oh, the so sky. these days you can manage it with the post-production.
1: That's right. What we would call Photoshop, I guess. Or...
0: Uh, yeah, I use Lightroom and Photoshop. Yeah,
1: so you don't need to monitor the light so much with fill light and all this sort of extra work in the field.
0: That's right. I still bring it along Mm -hmm. um, just in case there's a situation that needs it, but less and less all the time. Phil, just to talk shop a
1: little bit for our photographers that are listening, do you use a tripod? What sort of extra gear would you use or would you recommend?
0: Right. I very seldomly use a tripod personally. I want to be able to move quickly. Mm -hmm. I thought a lot of photographers just swear by
1: a tripod, but your shots just look perfectly crisp. So... You've got enough light to get a crisp shot without a
0: tripod. Yeah, these new cameras, (laughs) cameras that you can shoot up around 3200 ISO, it's incredible. And you don't get
1: graininess when you have that much ISO? they're pretty
0: clean. The latest one I've heard about is very clean.
1: And then what's the deal with shooting raw? A lot of people, they see that option. You can shoot raw or high definition or medium definition.
0: So um, most cameras have an onboard computer that will take the raw data and interpret it. They'll make the contrast, what they think it should be, and Mm -hmm. the color correction, what they think it would be, and then they spit out an image in a JPEG format. But that's throwing away some of the information. So you you can go raw and come home and do that work
1: after the fact? That's right. Is that the idea? That's right. Do you take advantage of that? Oh, you bet I do. I shoot everything in raw. As a professional photographer, you're shooting raw because you want complete flexibility when you get home, to pump up this or saturate that or whatever, exactly. interesting. And I love your mastery of the depth of field. It seems like you're very aware of what you want out of focus and what you want in focus. Can you talk about that for a minute? Right:
0: Well, the eye in any photo goes to what's in focus, what's the lightest, and how it's composed. So you can use those tricks to guide the viewer to look at the and thing what's you want out of focus but
1: still in the composition really adds to the composition.
0: Yeah, yeah, you can see what's back there in the background, even though it's out of focus. So you can tell the story of the person's environment or what they're dealing with. How do you help the eyes pop?
1: Because uh, that's <laughs> really important, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, if they're looking straight at you, and usually that the light would help me do that, and I can lighten just slightly the uh, white part of the eye in post and make them pop just a little bit more. So, you know, I fiddle a lot with my images. You wrote, you want
1: to create a relationship
0: between your audience and the subjects. How do you do that? Just having that direct, curious look. And as I say, it's easy to get with these people because they're very curious about me, because I look very different. They're very curious about my equipment. And I just want them to be projecting outwards towards the audience so the audience will feel that.
1: You're bringing home individuals, individual
0: people. Yeah. I want to get them out of the abstraction of their group. I want them to be individuals. We can learn more about your work at philborges.com. And Phil, what's next for you?
1: What's on your agenda?
0: Um, I'm headed for Dolpa in Nepal, a very remote region of Nepal right next to Mustang. And I'm doing a film on maternal health there. A lot of women die in childbirth and a lot of babies die at birth. So you really believe your photography can be a, a force for good?
1: Yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Phil Borges, travel photographer, producing many beautiful coffee table books. Most uh, currently, Tibet: Culture on the Edge. Thank you so much, and best wishes with your photography, your travels, and highlighting the beautiful diversity in humanity on this planet. Thank you, Rick. Phil Borges is also the founder of Bridges to Understanding. That teaches digital storytelling to teenagers across cultures. You'll find links to his websites in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Seeing the wilds of Africa with all your senses. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves.
0: Kaji Maitamei Oladepash, Aingwa Masailan nice safari That's in my Masai language. My name is Maitamei Oledapash. I'm from Maasailand in Kenya and I travel with Rick Steve. Kaji Maitamei Oledapash, Nangwa, Masailan
1: nice safari with As a child, he drew animals at the zoo. Today, he portrays those same animals in their natural habitat in Africa on what he calls an artist's safari. Fred Krakowiak first joined us on Travel with Rick Steves five years ago. He's back from his home base in Phoenix to tell us more about what the African bush country has been saying to him. His latest book of animal portraits and painting techniques is called The Artist's Safari, Capturing Africa with Pen, Lens, and Paintbrush. Fred, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Rick. You know, Fred, you open your book with this amazing story of the birth of a giraffe. Describe that experience to us. Well, the birth of the giraffe
2: came after a unique event. We had been traveling, and early in the morning, the forest went very quiet, and we were not sure exactly what had happened. And so we started tracking to where we heard a bunch of lines And they were chasing down a giraffe, a male giraffe. And if you can imagine three lionesses taking down a male giraffe, it was something to see. As they take this giraffe down, the lionesses separated, and two large males came from the back. One was black tuft behind its ears, and the other one was a little bit larger, had a golden mane with a red tint. Well, these two males came upon the scene and what had happened then was they stood up and fought over the first bite of meat, the prime choice of the giraffe. The larger of the two males stayed where he was and the smaller male moved to the rear. What happened next was very unique as all of this commotion caused a series of events and we had a circle of life, so to speak, as the lionesses stood guard around because they were going to eat next. The next circle, was the hyenas and the black-backed jackals. And then in the trees, the vultures had also started to perch and come. And over the next four days, we watched everyone take their turns at this giraffe until after the fourth day, there were only four ribs showing. Of course, it was a part of life, part of nature. And as we were leaving that site on the fourth day, we saw another giraffe, and it was a mother giving birth to a giraffe. And you could see this giraffe drop six feet and then no less than minutes went by and it stood up on its wobbly legs. And it was just a pleasure to see the circle of life. Something has to pass away in nature and then something is born later. You, you
1: talked about how the lionesses would take down a giraffe. It's almost like it's not tragic, it's just part of the circle isn't it absolutely it's just part of the circle you're a you're a painter and I would imagine it's a challenge for you to get a front row seat on all this action and it must be interesting for you to look at other tourists that come and go on safaris who really miss the boat as far as observing as a painter and as a enthusiast for the the wonder of natural life in Africa how do we observe better and how do we understand what you're seeing as, as you clearly do I encourage everyone
2: that I take to Africa or everyone I talk to about Africa, I encourage them to put the camera down and to use more of their senses, to use their senses of smell. Smell the what's about you. As an example, the wild dogs, the stench of the wild dogs is 10 times worse than that of a skunk. And yet people want to just pick up their camera and take pictures instead of using their sense of smell or their sense of hearing. If you're tracking down lions and you lose track of lions, use your sense of hearing. I tell a story in the book about tracking lions. I thought the lions, all their tracks went to the west, and I had thought that we would be going west, and Humphrey, of course, goes in the opposite direction. Humphrey being your your guide, your African guide. Yes, my African guide. After we had tracked them and fortunately was able to find them, I asked Humphrey, why did you go to the opposite direction of what all of my knowledge thought we should go? And he said, Fred, you didn't use your sense of hearing. And I said, I did. I heard the elephants and I heard the elands. I didn't hear anything. He goes, no, you did not listen good enough because you needed to listen to the baboons, the juvenile baboons, the first call the juvenile baboon learns, is the lion alarm, and they were screaming a lion alarm in the opposite direction, and so I knew they had backtracked. So again, you want to use all of your senses, your sense of smell, your sense of sight, put the camera down,
1: and be a part of Africa. You uh, begin your book with a quote from Paul Gauguin. It says, uh, I shut my eyes to see. What does that quote mean to you? Well, it means, quite frankly, just as it says,
2: You want to shut your eyes and use your other senses to listen to the language the animal kingdom uses to speak, the messages they communicate about the magnificence and frailty of life. In Africa, nature is actually distilled to its essence.
1: Is that part of the magic that keeps you going back to Africa every year? You're an artist. You could do your work in other parts of the planet. Uh, What is it about Africa?
2: Africa, specifically It's the close encounters with the amazing creatures of Africa that allow me to look into their eyes and deep into their souls and then capture their spirits with my pen, my photographs, my paintbrush. And this reveals the the inner circle, the magic of Africa. And the people of Africa, too, they are treasured symbols of, of their tribe.
1: Now, when you say look into the eyes and look into the souls of the animals, is that literal? Are you looking into their eyes and and seeing something?
2: Yes. I'm interpreting the animals through their posture, through their body language and their expressions indicated by the shape of their eyes or the position of their ears. I'm reading their body language. And even at night, you should be able to recognize predators by the way they sway their heads, their eye positions, the distance between their eyes. How far off the ground are their eyes? Is the sway of their head perpendicular? Is it like a protractor? Is it up and down? Africa is alive 24-7, so whether it be during the day, interpreting their body language and gazing into their eyes to see what they're feeling, facial expressions seldom lie.
1: Wildlife artist Fred Krakowiak is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Samples of his work are online at maverickbrushstrokes.com. And his latest book is called The Artist's Safari, Capturing Africa with Pen, Lens, and Paintbrush. You can also listen to Fred's 2008 interview in the Travel with Rick Steves archives. Look on our website for program 139. Fred, listening to you talk, I would imagine that your guide, Humphrey, who apparently you, is a favorite of yours, that you, you use year after year, would consider you a, a good student.
2: Well, he tests me, and he tests me quite often, and I like to be tested. I like to learn. I like. I want to enhance and increase my knowledge of Africa for several reasons, and one of them is for the conservation of Africa, the wildlife. Unfortunately, on this last trip, we found a, a rhino that had been poached not days before. It was very, very sad. So I try to learn everything I can about Africa as far as tracking, how to conserve wildlife, etc.
1: Talk a little bit about tracking, Fred. I read in your book you've got points of what makes uh, an effective animal tracker, and it's much more than just looking at the tracks. You even analyzed the urine that you would find in the dust. Yes, you
2: are tracking an animal through the space that it occupies as its home. You're just not following hoof or paw prints. You're looking for a scrape on a tree, a broken branch, flowers that are out of sequence. Tracking into the sun often will have prints light up like a runway. That's always to
1: your advantage to track into the sun. You even said spider webs matter. How would a spider web tell you something about an animal you're tracking? Spider webs do matter. If you're
2: looking and that spider web is broken in any way, then you know that an animal went through that direction, similar to spider webs that are between two flowers, as an example, two stems. If that spider web's been broken, then you know, even if the stem's not broken, if the spider web is busted, then you
1: know that an animal's walked through there, and that gives you an advantage. I noticed in one of the photographs in your book, Fred, your guide had a pistol in his holster, and there was duct tape over the trigger. What are the safety concerns, and why the duct tape?
2: Humphrey uses duct tape to make sure that there's no misfire on that gun. If he needs to pull it, he can easily pull the duct tape off, but is always, primary concern is safety. He's had a 100% safety record since he began guiding 14 years ago, and he always carries a rifle with him when we go tracking on foot, which is what we do primarily, and so You always must trust your guide and listen to him, and I always emphasize that to anyone who goes with us. You trust your life to your guide. Your guide has to make good decisions. If you're being charged by an elephant or, as we were this past safari, charged by a female lioness, you have to read its body language and you have to trust the guide that you're with to know exactly what you need to do and to give you the proper
1: instructions. Because when you trust your guide, I would imagine you can get out of your, what might be your comfort zone and get up really close and personal with the animals, which is your goal, I would imagine. As my wife says, I am an adrenaline junkie,
2: but I do like getting close to the animals and not put myself in harm's way, but again, to have a, an exciting moment in Africa. And Humphrey allows me to do that
1: you know that your ability to get close with humphrey's help really comes across in your art i got to say in your book the artist's safari the paintings that you make there's something almost super realistic about the paintings that that gets you there and and you couldn't possibly have made that painting without being right there and and hearing the landing of that baby giraffe when it's born or or feeling the thunder in the ground as the elephant's foot hits the ground near you Talk about being up really close to an elephant. When elephants
2: are charging and they are perhaps 30 feet away, an elephant sprinting runs at about 30 miles an hour. So you have three seconds, four seconds tops to make a decision on whether or not that's a mock charge or if it's not a mock charge. As an elephant is approaching, if his ears are coming out and they are not pinned back that's a good sign. That means it's going to be a mock charge. If his head is tilted up and looking directly at you instead of being down, tilted at a 45-degree angle down, that's also a good sign. You want his eyes looking up at you, not down. And you want his trunk, if it's hanging to the ground, you don't want it coiled underneath his chest because, again, that's more aggressive. What What's the purpose of a mock charge? I would imagine that's just posturing. It's posturing for the elephant to tell you that he's allowing you to be a visitor to his country.
1: Well, that would be reassuring. So you can continue your your work as a photographer or a painter knowing he's not going to be aggressive with you. Absolutely. And so as they approach,
2: it's very important to immediately read their body language. And then as they do approach, again, you want to use all of your senses. I quite often have put a camera down so that I can experience... The charge as he's kicking the dust up and looking at that foot and looking at those nails as they're hitting the ground and the dust is being thundered up into the air and pellets are bouncing off of my forehead. Man, oh, man. Just being able
1: to smell the musk. Listening to you talk about this, I just, I want to go there, but I I want Humphrey with me. I would, at this point, never go
2: back to Africa on a walking safari without Humphrey. I have been (laughs) with other guides, but Humphrey's one of the
1: best. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Fred Krakowiak, and Fred's new book is The Artist's Safari. In your uh, writing, I like your book because it's a combination of photographs that give you a sense of place, this vivid writing that gives you behind the scene and exactly what's going on that you've gleaned from your experience and the help of your guide, and your vibrant paintings of, of these scenes. You clearly have a respect for nature and a concern about you know the well-being of these species, and you, you write that... Extinction is forever. What's the big news with, with endangered species? From your book, I, I learned that there used to be about half a million lions just one generation ago, and now it's down to 20,000. Cheetahs have dropped from 100,000 a century ago to just 10,000 today. Are we in danger of, of losing some of these majestic beasts? We are.
2: Wild dogs is down to 3,000, or some estimates have it as high as 3,500, although that's probably a bit embellished. The problem we have is not only do we have human encroachment, but we also have things going on in Africa where money talks. And unfortunately, right now in Zimbabwe, there's a company that wants to employ their mineral rights and dig along the Rukamachi River, which is just outside a World Heritage Site of Mana Pools. So if they did that, that would just create havoc with the whole ecosystem of
1: monopools. Mm. Short-term profit for long-term disaster. You you call elephants ivory carriers. Are they still poached for their ivory?
2: Uh, Yes, unfortunately they are. They are still poached uh, very heavily in the Congo for ivory. Countries like South Africa have tried to eliminate it. And unfortunately, because of that, the genes that should be passed on so that these ivory carriers can continue to have these massive tusks. Uh, many of the elephants now that you see are tuskless, and they've, through genetics, if they have big tusks, then, you know, that doesn't uh,
1: bode well for their livelihood, and the tusks are smaller. So elephants are evolving to have smaller tusks because they're less prized by poachers? Yes, absolutely. Isn't that something? Also, Fred, you talk about how we often fear predators, you know, the fast cats with big teeth, but how they're often misunderstood and not appreciated.
2: Well, they are very misunderstood, and the lions, as an example, they, as I mentioned earlier, tracking a lion, you're in their house. This wildlife, whether it be lions or cheetahs or leopards, you know, we are invading where they have been for centuries. And so we have to be more conscientious of that fact. And they are not there to really harm anyone. I was surrounded by 18 lions this past safari. And the reason for that was simply that there was four cubs in a little channel that we had come upon and didn't see. And so we actually had to just wait until everybody calmed down. And then we were able to just back out and then walk away. So they weren't there to harm us. They were certainly there to put us on alert that they were not happy with us being there. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of being conscientious with your mm-hmm.
1: surroundings and being aware of your environment when you're there. Fred Krakowiak, the book Artists' Safari, it's a great journal. It's an intimate journal of your, your love of, of Africa and the, and the natural majesty of, of Africa. You write, We cannot love what we do not understand. How does that impact your work? Why do you write that? Well, that's one reason I went to Africa. 20 years ago when
2: I was painting from zoo animals and doing the art from the wildlife at zoos, someone had told me, Fred, you're missing their soul, you're missing their heart. And once I went to Africa, my art improved 200% because that's when you're out there walking amongst Africa and amongst the wildlife and looking at them in their eyes and looking at their souls, that's when you really appreciate the wildlife that's
1: there. Fred Krakowiak, thank you so much for the inspiration and um, congratulations on your beautiful book, The Artist's Safari.
2: Oh, thank you, Rick. I appreciate it. Hope we can talk again.
0: Bye.
1: Francis Tapon's about to start a multi-year journey into every country in Africa. Up next, he tells us how and why. We're at 877-333-7425. Our email is radio at ricksteves.com. There are some people who are so seriously bitten by the travel bug that they just can't stay home. And one of these people is Francis Tapon. We've interviewed him recently with his book, Hidden Europe, where he visited over three years every country in Eastern Europe, and now he's setting out to visit every country in Africa, all 54. And the exciting thing about this is Francis has never been to Africa. Francis has been all over the place. He's hiked thousands of miles on pilgrimage trails in the United States and in Europe. He's intending to visit every country in the entire world and right now Francis is packing up getting ready and Francis is dropping in right now to share his dreams and his plans and maybe pick up a few tips from our well-traveled listeners Francis thanks for being with us thank you Rick so give me the big picture here Francis because we talked last about Hidden Europe your book Hidden Europe which is a fascinating book and you had spent three years on sort of an odyssey visiting and staying in every country in Eastern Europe what's the big picture in your travel plans? Well, now it's going to be about Africa. So I spent uh,
3: visiting all 25 countries in Eastern Europe, and now it's 54 countries. So I've more than doubled the number of countries. And, of course, the size is almost 10 times the size, geographic size. So it's much bigger, and the the challenge is going to be much harder for a variety of reasons. But uh, the big picture is start in Egypt, head south mainly on the east side, and then come up the west side, eventually crossing over North Africa. And that's the general
1: itinerary. And I see from your map, it's a fascinating idea. You have actually, I I see the route here, and it it winds through all 54 countries. I think when you were beginning this, uh, your vision, it was 53 countries, but now we have South Sudan, right?
3: That's right, yeah. So I had to find a way to kind of wiggle (laughs) into South Sudan without crossing the South Sudan border because right now they are still in conflict.
1: Now, i got to be honest with you. I've traveled a lot in Asia and in Europe and Central America, Africa kind of scares me. Now, you can go pick and choose comfortable, stable places in Africa, but you don't have that luxury. You're going to every country in Africa. What are the big challenges for somebody traveling in Africa just because there's so many wars and failed nations and disputed borders and, you know, just dangers? One of the challenges is just getting visas a lot of
3: times because most African countries need visas. And Americans, uh, as Americans, we're not used to getting visas. And so that's just one bureaucratic hassle that can really turn into a nightmare for people. But as far as the conflicts are concerned, there's some good news on the front as far as I can tell. Most conflicts in Africa are localized. In other words, they're not taking over huge territories. For example, in the case of Mali, it's mainly North Mali that's having conflict right now. In the case of Somalia, they're just pockets in Somalia. Somalia land, which is in northern Somalia, is peaceful and has been peaceful for a while. Mm. Even Mogadishu is relatively peaceful. South Sudan, it's only along the border of Sudan that's having problems. And so as long as you're able to avoid those hot spots, I think in general it will be relatively safe. Now, of course, I may run into trouble anywhere, uh, but then again, you can
1: run into trouble in New York City. Now, before we get deeper into Africa, I'm curious just about your passion for travel in general. You have a degree in religion. What exactly was that, and how does that inform or impact your travels?
3: Yeah, I went to Amherst College and was curious about religion to learn more about people. I think you have to understand religions of the world. Religion is important in the United States, but it's, I think, much more important in most other countries, except for maybe in the region of Europe. So I think it's important to study it and to respect the cultures and to learn more about how they think, what they value, you have to understand religion.
1: So that's one of the key reasons I, I majored in in that uh, study. I really enjoyed listening to your TED lecture, and you talked about how many of the, the greatest, most enlightened leaders and teachers were travelers. That's right,
3: yeah. And they were people who spent time also in the wilderness, too. Give us some examples of that. Sure. Uh, for example, the Buddha meditated a lot in the wilderness. Yeah, of course, Jesus went into the wilderness where he had his most intense confrontation with with the devil, and that's where he got his most period of enlightenment. Um, if you look at Muhammad, he went to Mount Hira to get his inspiration for the Quran. Almost all the religions, even Abraham, it's the same kind of story where you kind of go off into the wilderness to get wisdom. And so I think that wherever you go, whether it be Europe, you can go to the mountaintops, And I think spending time and commuting with nature is something that can be very beneficial. And that's something that I intend to
1: do also in Africa. So that gets into transformational travel. You wrote that climbing Mount Blanc was one of your most transformational experiences. How is that?
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it can be just a weekend, for example, which is what it took me to hike up Mont Blanc. But when you get yourself out of your comfort zone when you travel The more out of your comfort zone, the more foreign the country, the more the language is unrecognizable to you, the more the whole way of life is unrecognizable. I think people grow as a result of such experiences. And so I always try to encourage people to get out of their comfort zone, to push themselves further, and to go into areas that are not familiar. And I think as a result, you're going to be transformed. I did the same thing with El Camino Santiago de Compostela in Spain. It's a long trail that goes across the north part of Spain. I know you've covered it, Rick. And uh, it's a fascinating, transformative journey as well, just as is the three long pilgrimages that I've done in the United States, the
1: Pacific Crest Trail, the Continental Divide Trail, and the Appalachian Trail. So you get out of your comfort zone and you get alone in, in the wilderness.
3: Yeah. To me, if you can spend just some time out there, you're getting away from the cell phones, you're getting away from the email, you're getting away from all the distractions that we have in the modern world. You learn to live without all the amenities that we have, I think we inevitably will learn something about ourselves and about the
1: world. You can follow Francis Tapon's blog posts and see how the route he's mapped out across Africa's coming along at his website. It's Africa54.com. Information about his Wander Learn adventures, including his TED Talks and his book about a three-year excursion across Eastern Europe, are all at Francistapon.com. That's spelled T-A-P-O-N. Now, in Africa, you're going to spend three years in Africa. You're leaving just within a short period of time. Where are you at in your planning now? Do you have your papers? Do you have your visas? Uh, Do you have your shots? What's involved? Yeah, you have to get a
3: fair amount of shots. (laughs) But the key thing, I think, is getting the visas. And unfortunately, because there's 54 countries, and because most of the time when you want to get a visa, they have to know when you're going to be entering the country, when you're going to be leaving, where you're going to be staying. And all these details, which of course I have no clue, because it's three years. I can't. Right. I can't predict where I'm going to be in in July 2014.
1: So you'll be when you're in uh, Zimbabwe, you'll be working on your visa for South Africa, and when you're in South Africa, Bingo. you'll be figuring out how you're going to get in and out of Namibia. That's right, exactly okay. right.
3: And sometimes maybe if I'm lucky, I'll be able to do two or three countries. Let's say if I'm in Johannesburg, if there's a several embassies in the Johannesburg, I'll be able to go to three embassies in a row and and get all three visas right there and spend a week camping out in Johannesburg while waiting for all those visas to process. But unfortunately, a lot of times they ask for your passport and they ask to keep it. Now, the good news on my case is that I've got three passports uh, because my mom's from Chile, my father's French, so I have a oh. French EU passport and I have an American passport. Is there an art to know which one to show when? <laughs> yeah, I mean, in general, there's countries that have a negative disposition
1: toward the West. Uh, then those are the ones I want to show my Chilean passport that might come in very handy. Yeah. I was talking with Paul Theroux about his book on Africa, and he is passionate about the importance of going overland, actually crossing borders on the ground instead of flying from capital to capital. How do you plan to actually transport yourself?
3: I agree with Paul 100%. Yeah, I think Paul's absolutely right. It's being able to see things on the land as much as possible. I mean, there'll be a few exceptions, Rick. Maybe going to Madagascar and going to the Seychelles Islands I may not be able to go on a boat to get Mm. there because there's pirates that kind of are patrolling the the coast out there. And so it might be a little bit too dangerous to go there. If I really want to go to Mogadishu, it may not be difficult to get there by overland without crossing enemy territory. And so I may have to fly into Mogadishu if I really want to go there.
1: I do a lot of trip planning and two terms I've never even said in the same paragraph as a trip planning paragraph is pirates and uh, enemy territory. You're going to be dealing with pirates and enemy territory for three years. What are you? What's your biggest fear? What do you think the biggest risk is? Well, actually, I'm I'm really afraid of getting hit by a car.
3: You know, a lot of times in third world countries, Rick, you've probably experienced this too, they drive like crazy, like total oh, yeah. maniacs. Yeah. The roads are really narrow sometimes, and it's just crazy how people drive there, especially the buses, etc. And so I think that's my biggest fear. I'm not really worried about being eaten by a lion and that kind of stuff. Getting malaria is also one of my fears, but I think that's not going to be a
1: a big issue. So you're pretty confident you can go through 54 countries in Africa and not get some terrible kind of tropical disease?
3: Well, I hope so. I mean, I think that's going to be as long as I'd be able to take some of my malaria pills and that kind of stuff in order to wearing long sleeves and that kind of stuff. I've done a lot of camping, so I know what you need to do in order to not get bitten. But, of course, nobody's perfect, and
1: mosquitoes are pretty clever. Pills can't help you from getting just ripped off. On your website, you say you plan to get robbed three times. What's with that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
3: In other words, I try to look at being ripped off as a positive thing, especially in Africa. In other words, if you think about this, let's say you have a really expensive camcorder or you have a wallet with $500 worth of cash or whatever, and you get stolen, that money... Or the value of that, that guy is going to steal your camera. He's eventually going to sell it in Africa. He's not going to sell it to China or he's not going to sell it in the United States, most likely. And wherever he sells it, he's going to keep the money. It's going to circulate in the African society. And so in a sense, you could look at being ripped off as a contribution to the African economy. It's, it's of course, not a willing contribution, but at least it's one way to make yourself feel a little bit better about being ripped off. And uh, the fact that, well, you know what? I just lost my wallet again or somebody stole it. (laughs) Okay, well, at least it's not going complete waste. It's going to go eventually to feed somebody and to uh, help somebody improve their standard of living.
1: And, you know, when we get our camera ripped off, it ruins our day, but somebody's going to sell that for six months' wages in their poor economy. So it's, it's a positive way to look at it. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Francis Tapon and Francis is setting out eventually to visit every country in the world. We talked to him recently after visiting all the countries in Eastern Europe, and he wrote a book called The Hidden Europe, What Eastern Europeans Can Teach Us, and just within a short period of time, he's going to be deep into his three-year odyssey visiting all 54 countries in Africa. Francis Tapon's website for this adventure is africa54.com. Francis, I know packing's very important, and I know you've got ideas on a minimalist bag, I enjoyed reading your rundown of what you think is a good bag. You're going to be out there in the elements. You're going to be alone. You're going to be crossing borders into countries you've never been. You want to be mobile. Tell us about your backpack.
3: Yeah, I'm going to be using a Gossamer Gear backpack, which is a super light backpack. I weigh everything by the ounce, and so I'm going to be carrying the minimalist clothes I'm probably going to be carrying like ex officio clothes that dry quickly. Three underwears and two shirts and one pair of pants, and that's it. And so I can wash things and then hang them up on the clothesline to dry. I figure in most places in Africa, it's going to be warm enough for it to hang dry. Yeah. And so just really minimize your packs. I have walked across America, spent seven months in the wilderness,
1: and I was carrying just six pounds of equipment with me without food and water. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Francis Tapon as he embarks upon a three-year adventure visiting every country in Africa. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And we have Donna calling in from Yakima in Washington. Donna, thanks for your call.
4: Hello, Rick. Hello, Francis. Thank you. Hi. Um, I reviewed Francis's Africa route map, and you mentioned the Morocco-Algeria border problem and having to backtrack also that you regretted doing that. I've been to Tangier, Morocco, and have experience with the Tangier-Tarifa ports, and I was wondering why you couldn't take the boat from Tangier to Tarifa, uh, Spain, or Gibraltar to a port or airport that departs for Algeria. And then that way you could avoid, you know, the, the border problem.
3: That's a great idea. Yeah, it's interesting because in the case of Algeria and Morocco. I won't be there for another two years. Think about me starting in Egypt and I'm going to be going basically clockwise around Africa. So by the time I get to the Morocco-Algeria border, it will be two years from now. Who knows what the situation will be there between the border? But if you're right that the border is still kind of closed, I think your idea is fabulous of going into Gibraltar and, and crossing countries that way.
1: That's an example of how Francis is going to have to play things by ear as he goes and see where the heat is.
3: Yeah, that's right.
1: That's Who good. knows where it will be in two years, though? <laughs> right. Donna, thanks for your call.
4: Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Francis.
1: Okay, bye now. Sure, thank Bye-bye. you. bye And Carolyn's on the phone in Tacoma. Carolyn, thanks for your call.
4: You're welcome. Glad to be here.
1: Comment for Francis?
4: Yes, Francis. I've been to four countries in Africa um, on both sides of the, the continent, and I guess this would be for any place outside of the United States, but have you checked into Medic Alert and their foundation... You can both have an instant way of making sure people know your your medical history, if need be, for an emergency, and the other thing is they have a wonderful kind of bridge plan. I was in Nairobi in July of 1998, just before the embassy was bombed, and had my own accident and found out that you need to have the money on hand when you get out of the hospital, and I found out the hard way. If my dad hadn't come to save me, I wouldn't have been able to get out. So they have a a bridge plan that I wouldn't travel without. And it's where they pay, Medical Alert will pay up front the money that your medical plan then will pay later. I just think that's really important to have.
3: Yeah. I've written an article on my website just recently about all the issues of how you get medical insurance while traveling, as well as just general travel insurance, as well as property insurance. So all these Mm -hmm. insurance things are something that I've I've certainly uh, thought about. And I think you're absolutely right. It's something that a lot of travelers may not uh, consider when they go out to these places. Uh, But it does make a big difference. And nobody wants any misfortune to happen, but. it's a great way to prepare and and to get yeah. uh, some medical evacuation when when you need it most.
4: Right, it it really is, and there's so many accidents that can happen that you have nothing to do with. They just happen, like you mentioned earlier in the program about uh, being in a car. Things happen, so that having the proper things in place before you leave, I I do believe is very important and a part of of your planning.
1: Boy, I would imagine, especially for what Francis is about to do. Carolyn, thanks for
3: your call.
4: Safe traveling, Francis.
1: Thank you,
3: Carolyn. I I just signed my will and testament, so uh, just updated it, gave all the instructions on what to do when I die and all this other stuff. It's kind of sobering to do so, but uh,
1: it's something important to do that we should all do. Uh, Mihai in Watkins Glen, New York, emailed us and says, uh, we're wrapping up a family around-the-world trip in 15 months, inspired by an episode of this radio show. They visited four African countries. Um, He advises you, Francis, to plan at least a couple months in Madagascar and choose wisely the time of year to go. There's no access for up to six months in some of the most interesting regions. Take your time in South Africa. This country has countless amazing attractions, but three weeks in Egypt was plenty. Don't waste your time there at the beginning of your trip. You must be getting a lot of tips from people on where you should spend more and less time.
3: Yeah, and and I appreciate all the advice because it's something that's invaluable to me. I think that uh, in the case of Madagascar, I would love to. I mean, Madagascar is the size of California, so it's pretty large. And one of my dreams is to go to one end of Madagascar and walk across the entire spine of it and to the other end. I don't know if I'll actually do that, but it's something because I have to find out from the locals there to just see how feasible right. that really is. But that's something I'd like to do. I've, I've walked across America four times, so I know physically I could do it.
1: Yeah, well, you walked the whole, what, 2,600 miles of the Pacific Crest Trail from the border of Canada to the border of Mexico? And you mentioned Correct. 85% of the people who start this, intending to do it, drop out and don't make it. Uh, what are the chances you're going to drop out of this thing three years visiting all the countries in Africa?
3: I, I mean, I, I'm not used to dropping out, so I've never dropped out on any trail and, and I don't quit. Uh, I'm, I'm a pretty stubborn guy when I set my mind to it. If anything, it's more likely that I might take more time, Rick, and so instead of taking three years, I might take four years.
1: You've got the luxury of time. you are you're, you're living life very intentionally and very thoughtfully. You did a fun thing about how you'd rate your life on a one to 10 scale. Back in 2000, you gave it a seven. How would you rate your life now in on one to 10 and why?
3: I would give it a 9. I mean, the only reason I can't say that it's a 10 is just I just haven't found that romantic partner who I'm going to be spending my life with who wants to travel just as much as I do and travel to all these different places. So I think that's the one missing ingredient to bring me a 10. But
1: other than that, I would say
3: Hmm. I'm I'm a very happy 9.
1: Well, and for three years, you might be able to pick up some beautiful romantic souvenir in Africa. That would give you a chance. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes, exactly. I'll pick up some sort of farmer in Somalia.
1: <laughs> it can happen. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are fantasizing about visiting every country in Africa. Francis's website is Africa54.com. And Francis, I don't want you to rush your trip, but as soon as you're done, let's be sure to get together and hear about your adventures.
3: Yeah, I hope so. In 2016, Rick.
1: All right. Take care. Have a great time.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh-huh.
1: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. You'll find links to our guests and archives of each week's show in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Thanks for help this week to KJZZ Phoenix and KQED San Francisco and to Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern Graham. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.
0: Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.